One of the greatest gifts that God can give us is to show us our limitations. Of course, that is not what you and I are normally taught from day to day. What we're taught is that we should focus on overcoming our limitations. And if you can't overcome them, then ignore them and focus on your strengths instead. Whatever you do, don't sit and think about the smallness of your understanding and your wisdom and your power. Instead, dream big dreams. Aim for the stars and convince yourself that you can get there. Whatever illness you have, you can fight it and you can win. Whatever family crisis you're facing, you can solve it if you try hard enough. That is the wisdom you and I are bombarded with every day. But the Bible takes that and it turns it all upside down. The Bible says, meditate on your limitations. Consider how small you are. Reflect on how many things are beyond you. Count how many things you can't achieve, no matter how hard you try. And as you do that, something liberating will begin to happen. You will begin to see the true greatness of God. You will begin to rest in his power and his wisdom. And you will begin to have peace. God is a gracious God. And in his grace, sometimes he comes and he shows us our limitations. That's what God is doing with Job. Last week we looked at the first of God's speeches to Job. In fact, it would be better to use the word conversation. We should think of it that way, not because Job has an awful lot to say in these final chapters. He doesn't say much at all in this last part of the book. But God approaches this as a conversation. We saw last time, God does not come and batter Job. Now it is clear, God is angry. He speaks to Job out of a storm, not out of a sunrise. But in his anger, God comes graciously. As he speaks, he invites Job to consider and to respond. God does that by asking Job lots and lots of questions. And last time, God led Job on a grand tour of creation. He showed that he is God of the wild earth. And he's God of the wild life on earth. He's God of the chaotic sea and the distant constellations. He's God of the destructive lightning and snow. And he's God of the life-giving dew and rain. He's God of the predator and of the prey. He oversees the lions as they hunt and the deer as they give birth. He's the God of the foolish ostrich and he's the God of the war horse with his lust for battle. 
God's counsel extends to the whole of creation. Darkness as well as light. Death as well as life. When God finished that tour of creation, he invited Job to respond. But we saw last time, Job had nothing to say. Apart from saying that he had nothing to say. That seems to indicate Job is not yet where God wants him to be. Job has been silenced before God, but his silence is just a grudging admission that he can't compete with God. It's a negative silence from Job, not a positive one. But God wants to take Job further than that. He wants Job to experience the freedom that comes when we acknowledge our limitations and then find peace by seeing God's lack of limitations. That's where God wants to take Job. And so God speaks again. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning at Job chapter 40, verse 6. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 540. Or in the large print Bibles, page 835. Job chapter 40, verse 6, and we'll read through to chapter 42, verse 6. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Look at behemoth which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins. What power in the muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are close-knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze. Its limbs are like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God. Yet its maker can approach it with his sword. The hills bring it their produce, and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plant it lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal it in their shadow. The poplars by the stream surround it. A raging river does not alarm it. It is secure, though the Jordan should surge against its mouth. Can anyone capture it by the eyes or trap it and pierce its nose? Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will, you, will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of it? Like a bird, or put it on a leash for the young women in your house. Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? 
Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must repay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, its strength and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armor? Who dares open the doors of its mouth, ringed about with its fearsome teeth? Its back has rows of shields, tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flames stream from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. Its breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from its mouth. Strength resides in its neck. Dismay goes before it. The folds of its flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. Its chest is hard as rock, hard as a lower millstone. When it rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before its thrashing. The sword that reaches it has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron it treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make it flee. Sling stones are like chaff to it. A club seems to it but a piece of straw. It laughs at the rattling of the lance. Its undersides are jagged potsherds, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. It makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. It leaves a glistening wake behind it. One would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is its equal. A creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak, I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is God's word. There are significant ways in which this section is different from what we saw last week. But it starts in the same way. In chapter 40, verse 7, God says to Job, Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. So we know this is going to be a bracing experience for Job. But again, God is not aiming to destroy him. He is aiming for a particular response from Job. 
And then, having started in the same way, God goes in a very different direction from last time. Chapters 38 and 39 dealt with God's counsel. How he has ordered this world and how he governs it. But now the focus is on God's justice. We've seen in previous weeks, Job has become so obsessed with justifying himself that he has pretty much called God unjust. And so what we might expect God to do here is to defend himself against that charge. Maybe to give an explanation of Job's situation and make it all clear. Show how it fits into God's bigger plan. But that is not what God does. Instead, he gives Job a challenge. Job, you call me unjust. But do you know what it takes to conquer evil and bring justice? Look again at verse 8 of chapter 40. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. God says, do you want to go at dealing with evil? Do you think you could deal with it in a just way? Then step on up, Job. Wrap yourself in divine glory and splendor. And once you've done that, let loose all of that frustration that's inside you. It's been boiling in your heart for a while. Are you confident you could unleash that wrath in a way that is just? God says to Job, you seem to think I've been making a complete horlicks of it. So how would you get on, Job? Could you put all the wrongs right? Could you use all that indignation you feel to achieve justice? Job, do you even know what is involved in conquering evil? It's important for us to see God is not saying, Job, mate, just give me a break. It's hard work running the universe. You need to bear with me, and I bet you couldn't do any better than me. No. God is saying, even if you had my position, Job, you do not have my wisdom. Even if you were on my throne to administer justice, you wouldn't know how. Tim Keller gets the point here when he says, a seven-year-old cannot question the mathematical mathematical calculations of a world-class physicist. Yet we question how God is running the world. Does that make sense? It's not just that a seven-year-old doesn't have the opportunity to be a world-class physicist. 
He doesn't have the understanding, or she. If he was appointed to the chair of physics at Oxford University, he wouldn't know how to begin or where to begin. And if he went ahead and began anyway, he would make a royal mess of things. And it would be no different if Job or me or you were appointed to the throne of the universe. Maybe there are days when you and I wish that we had God's scepter in our hand so we could sort things out in the world. But if we're honest, we wouldn't know how or where to begin. We have no idea what's involved in bringing true justice to the world. We have no idea what it takes to conquer evil. And to demonstrate that, God gives a further challenge to Job. Can you subdue the wildest things of all, Job? From here until the end of chapter 41, God deals with just two creatures called Behemoth and Leviathan. What are they? Well, let's look at them. First of all, at Behemoth, what are his characteristics as he's described here? His main characteristics are a voracious appetite and great strength. Look at chapter 40, verse 15. Look at Behemoth, which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins. What power in the muscles of its belly. Feeding like an ox means it has the appetite of an ox. An appetite that is never satisfied. Then we're told in verse 19, it ranks first among the works of God, yet its maker can approach it with his sword. Instead of yet its maker, that may be better translated, only its maker can approach it with his sword. The implication is no human power can destroy Behemoth. Only God can deal with him. Then we're told Behemoth is equally at home on the land or in the water. Verse 23 says, A raging river does not alarm it. It is secure, though the Jordan should surge against its mouth. And God finishes the description of Behemoth by saying in verse 24, Can anyone capture it by the eyes or trap it and pierce its nose? And clearly we're supposed to answer that with a no. We've been told its maker with his sword is the only answer to this beast. Whatever behemoth is, it is a super beast. Then we're told about Leviathan. He gets a considerably longer description. He gets 34 verses instead of 10 for behemoth. God begins this description the way the other one ended with the impossibility of Leviathan being subdued by human strength. Chapter 41, verse 1. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? 
Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put it on a leash for the young woman in your house? Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. God says, Leviathan is beyond human control. If anyone tries, if they rouse him, they will regret it. No one is fierce enough to deal with him. No one except God. We were told that only the maker's sword could subdue behemoth. And here, only God stands higher and fiercer than Leviathan. Everything under heaven belongs to God, even Leviathan. Leviathan is another super beast. It is well beyond our power to deal with him, but he's under God's power. The description goes on. Verse 13 says, Leviathan wears a double coat of armor. Then down in verse 18 we're told, its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flames stream from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. Its breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from its mouth. And then once again, as the description ends, we're told this super beast cannot be defeated by human power. Verse 25, when it rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before its thrashing. The sword that reaches it has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron, it treats like straw, and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make it flee. Sling stones are like chaff to it. A club Seems to it but a piece of straw. It laughs at the rattling of the lance. Its side, undersides are jagged potsherds, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. It makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. It leaves a glistening wake behind it. One would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is its equal. A creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. Last week we saw that the sea in the ancient world was a symbol of chaos and evil. Now we're told Leviathan is the one who churns up the sea. Chaos and disorder is stirred up by this super beast. He's the one who makes it froth and boil. And finally we're told Leviathan is king over all that are proud. He is the proudest one of all. And he rules the kingdom of the proud. 
So now that we've looked at the descriptions, we have to ask again, what are these beasts? Well, last week, God pointed us to lots of different animals. All of them were wild, and all of them were easily identifiable. Everybody knows what a lion is. Everybody knows what donkeys are. Everybody knows what eagles are. But behemoth and leviathan do not correspond to any known animals in the world. Now, of course, people have tried to identify them with known animals. It's been suggested that behemoth is either a hippo, an elephant, a water buffalo, or a crocodile. But none of those fit the description we're given. For Leviathan, people have suggested the whale or the crocodile again. But we're told Leviathan breathes fire. Have you ever seen a whale or a crocodile do that? I can think of a mythical monster that breathes fire. But no actual animal on earth. And that is our clue to what's going on here. These chapters are not just a little add-on to God's grand tour of natural wildlife. That would be a major anticlimax. If God's trump card was to announce, Job, only I can deal with the hippo and the crocodile. That would be an anticlimax and it wouldn't actually be true. Human swords and javelins can deal with hippos and crocodiles. They could do in Job's day just as much as today. No, the further on that you and I read in these descriptions, it becomes clear we are dealing here with things that are beyond nature. They're still part of God's creation, but not part of the natural realm. Behemoth and Leviathan are super beasts and they represent powers of the supernatural realm. And in both cases we are told only God can restrict them and only God can ultimately conquer them. If we're going to be more specific than that about what they are, Behemoth is the harder one for us to pin down exactly. He may well represent death, it seems, with his insatiable appetite and the fact that he operates anywhere, on the land or on the sea. But when we come to Leviathan, the picture is much clearer. That's because apart from here in Job, Leviathan is mentioned three other times in the Old Testament. Twice in the Psalms and also in the book of Isaiah. And when he appears in Isaiah, the context is this. Isaiah is prophesying about a future day of deliverance for God's people. And as he looks forward into the future and sees God's people being set free, this is what Isaiah says. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan. The gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent, he will slay the monster of the sea. 
Isaiah is not talking here about the ultimate fishing trip. This is about God achieving freedom for his people. God is talking about the defeat of his arch enemy, the king of the proud, the head of the forces of supernatural evil and chaos. This is a being who made his first appearance as a serpent in the Garden of Eden. And he continues to be pictured that way right throughout Scripture. Except after Genesis 3, he has grown considerably into a vast, coiling serpent of the sea. It's almost as if the appearance of sin in the world increased his strength. We move on into the New Testament and we get to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And this is how it describes the enemy of God's people. That great dragon, that ancient snake called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. The writers of Scripture know it is one thing to tell us Satan is dangerous. It's a whole lot more effective to show us that Satan is dangerous. And what can picture that better than a fire-breathing dragon? So whenever we call Leviathan a mythical monster, we are not saying that he's make-believe. What we mean is he represents a very real supernatural being. You and I can't see the devil. But scripture tells us he has all the characteristics of a fire-breathing dragon. Or in the case of death, he has an appetite that is never satisfied. Like behemoth who devours everything in front of him. So if that's what these super beasts are, if they represent the greatest powers of supernatural evil, let's remember now why God is talking about them. Remember, he's given Job a challenge. Do you know what it takes, Job, to conquer evil and bring justice? No, Job, you don't. And to prove that, God has confronted Job, not with natural powers, but with supernatural powers. The point is, Job, if you were to ascend to my throne, if you were to take my scepter in your hand, you would have to deal with more than the natural realm, more than the weather and the kingdoms of the earth. You would have to contend with supernatural forces, the prince of darkness and his henchman, death. Job, do you have the faintest idea what's involved in taking on those powers? No, you haven't got a clue. There are wild things out there beyond your ability to comprehend, never mind subduing them. That's a humbling thing for Job to think about. But here's the beautiful part of it. God knows what it takes to subdue those powers. 
He has what it takes. We must never ever think of God versus the devil as if it's a finely balanced contest. It's not like Star Wars where it's the empire versus the republic and who knows who's going to win. And even when one side wins, they haven't really won. And so we have to come back for yet another film and watch them do it all over again. The Bible presents us with one maker of all who is sovereign over all. Even evil supernatural powers are under the power of the one God. Those powers are not independent of God. They're not a law unto themselves doing their own thing. We saw that back in chapters 1 and 2. In those chapters, Satan was pictured as a member of God's heavenly court. Very clearly under God's authority. Here, Satan is pictured differently. As a wild part of God's creation. The wildest of all the wild things. But again, he's very clearly under God's authority. This terrible monster is still a creature at the end of the day. He still answers to his creator. The message is that God and God alone has Satan on a leash. Satan is a rival to God only in Satan's own mind, not in reality. He's certainly too fierce for you and me to handle, but not too fierce for his maker. Satan is certainly king of the pride, but not king of the universe. He's under a higher authority and he can neither overcome that authority or step outside of it. Do you know what it takes to conquer evil and bring justice? No, Job, you don't. Can you subdue the wildest things of all? No, Job, you can't. But I can, God says. It's not until the New Testament that we learn what it took for God to do that. The book of Hebrews tells us it took a manger and then a cross. It says, God the Son took on human flesh so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is, the devil. The book of Romans asks, how could God be just and at the same time forgive guilty sinners? The answer is, he died in the place of guilty sinners. Sin has been punished And now the guilty can go free. Justice has been done. The cross tells us only God knows what it takes to conquer evil and bring justice. Only God can subdue the wildest things of all. So you see what this passage in Job does. It brings us face to face with terrifying evil that is way too strong for us. It shows us bringing justice and order to this universe is way out of our league. That is a very humbling thing for us to realize. 
To have our deep limitations spread out in front of us like this. But at the very same time, we are seeing more clearly who God is. Maybe it's beginning to dawn on us, he really does reign without a rival. Even the very wildest things are on his leash. And one day they will be under his sword. God's purpose here is not only to humble us. It's to humble us so we can begin to gain the knowledge of God that brings peace. Look at chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God has not answered Job's questions. God has done something bigger than that. If he'd answered Job's questions about yesterday, what would have happened? Job would just come back tomorrow with more questions, querying what God was doing in each new situation. God has done something better than to answer Job's questions. He has shown Job that God alone knows what it takes to conquer evil and bring justice. He has shown Job that only God can subdue the wildest things of all. And so Job can begin to have peace. Knowing that God knows what he's doing. That's the sense here of verse 5. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. As Job has listened to God's words, he has seen God more clearly than ever before. The penny has dropped for Job. Job has no new insight into his own circumstances. He still doesn't know why his life has gone the way it has. But Job does have a deeper knowledge of God. He knows that God has all things in hand. From the silly ostrich to the darkest powers of evil. And so Job can have peace. He can stop worrying about giving God advice. And holding God to account. He knows now God is well and truly on top of things. And so Job repents. He is not repenting of some sin that brought on his suffering. We know his suffering didn't come because of sin. Job knows that too. Job is repenting of the sin he committed while he was suffering. His bitterness towards God. 
his dogged insistence that God was messing things up, that he was failing to rule the world with justice. I'm sure we've all had the experience of thinking back, maybe at the end of the day, over certain things that we've said in the day. And as we think back, we find ourselves cringing as we remember some of the stupid things that we came out with. That's what Job is expressing when he says in verse 6, I despise myself. In other words, I cringe with shame when I remember my self-confident rants at you, God. When I think that I had the nerve to believe I could open your eyes to a few things about life and death that you needed to know. That I thought I could advise you about running the world with justice. What an idiot I've been. Job has been humbled. His limitations have become painfully obvious. And in being humble, Job has also been liberated. He has been set free by seeing the unlimited greatness of God. He can begin to rest in God's power and wisdom. He can have peace, even in suffering and loss. And maybe you and I can too. Let's pray. Father, we know that these words are not just for Job. They're here for us too. And we confess that we worry so often about you. We look at our lives and we wonder if you have really thought our situation through. We wonder, was it wise of you to let this happen to us? Did you miss some things when you planned these circumstances for us? Were you distracted when you sent these things our way? We would have done it very differently. And so sometimes we worry whether you're still up to the job of ruling the universe. We wonder to ourselves, are you getting sloppy after all these years on the throne? And so we ask you now to forgive us. Show us our limitations. Show us just how little we know. How little we understand about administering justice. About what's involved in conquering evil and subduing dark powers. And then, Father, remind us that you do know. You know what it takes and you do what it takes. Even when that means one of the Trinity putting on human flesh and surrendering to death. We look at the cross and we can say, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. You are the God who gets things right. 
whatever it takes. Will you help us to grow in our knowledge of you so that we can live in peace, so that our hearts can rest in you. Amen. Let's worship God as we sing together. Oh, Father, you are sovereign.